Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Risha Desai. Dr. Russell Lede is one of those people with a personal story and a string of accomplishments that leaves you in awe. He just completed an MD, MBA program at Tulane University and is headed for a triple board residency in pediatrics, general psych, child and adolescent psychiatry at Indiana University. He previously earned a PhD in molecular oncology and tumor immunology at NYU and is a veteran of the U.S. Navy. He is also the co-founder, president, and manager of the 15 White Coats, a world-renowned organization dedicated to propel underrepresented minority students into medicine. And a very special shout out to Jill Cummings on the Osmosis team for first introducing us to Dr. Lede and the great work he's doing. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Desai. So, so definitely call me Rishi, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that you're sitting right now in a library. So maybe we can just start with kind of why you're there at the moment. Yeah, so the 15 White Coats, as Rishi just talked about, uh, have partnered with a local hospital called Children's Hospital in New Orleans. And um, as part of that partnership, we've really invested ourselves in visiting local high schools here in New Orleans. And one of those that we're at now is Haynes Academy of Advanced Studies here in Metairie, Louisiana. And we're here to give them two scholarships, which is the main focus of the 15 White Coats is to make sure that there's economic benefit and help for minorities. That's awesome. I appreciate you mentioning that and kind of putting a spotlight on that. You know, when I read your list of, of accomplishments, you know, anyone kind of listening and not seeing you would just naturally assume you must be about 100 years old, right, to, to have gone through those experiences. So, but you're not 100. You've obviously done a lot in your youth and in your time on this planet. So maybe just give us a little bit of background. Like what, what got you first started in medicine? And, and then I also mentioned your first graduate degree or postgraduate degree was in molecular oncology. Mm-hmm. What was that interest kind of coming from? Yeah, so first thing, the medicine part. So when I, I finished my first active duty stint in the United States Navy, I had to get a regular job. So while I was going to undergrad, I also got a job as a security guard at a local hospital in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And that was my first exposure to medicine. So, you know, the, the awe of seeing people walking around in white coats. And I was in the emergency room, so you see all the trauma. And I was like, wow, maybe this is something I can do with my life. And of course, you ask a million and one physicians, like, can I shadow you? And I, I can remember vividly a lot of them telling me, man, security guards don't become doctors, bro. Like, <laughs> you need to think about something else, but, but this might not be it. And um, there was one guy, he was the chief surgery resident who needed help to get to the operating room. And I helped him, escorted him. And I shot my shot again. And he was like, yeah, man, you can shadow with me. And I actually stayed at the hospital overnight that same night. He told me yes and met him the morning of for rounds. And, uh, it's been, you know, a roller coaster ever since with uh, with Patrick Kreifenstein, who's a trauma surgeon now here in New Orleans. And um, that's kind of how I got interested in medicine. Obviously, I took a circuitous route. Um, I didn't get into med school the first time because I struggled on that big MCAT test. And so I went to NYU to get my PhD in molecular oncology after a mentor told me and he thought I was probably brilliant enough to become a, a physician scientist and not just a physician. So I took that chance. And when I went there, I really went there with the idea of, figuring out if there was something I could study that was directly applicable to not only my own life, but the community I came from. And so prostate cancer is what I focused on. We really leveraged proteomics and bioinformatics to look at different oncogenic settings. And um, that was my work. And it ended up, you know, focusing in molecular oncology and tumor immunology. And that's how I ended up there because obviously prostate cancer is a health disparity. And then as I was finishing on my PhD, that's when I made the decision like, okay, let me try for this med school thing again. But I felt like at that point, 
I was a, a pretty good candidate for a full ride. And so literally the same morning, my second daughter was born about 30 minutes later, I got an email from Tulane and they were like, Hey, we got a full ride waiting for you. If you want to come here. Wow. So <laughs> I decided to come to Tulane. And as you know, when you get a PhD, you don't have to pay for it. And so up until this point, I haven't paid for any of my education, which has been amazing. So six degrees later, it's all been free. So I'm pretty happy right now. <laughs> wow. That's, I mean, that's amazing. I'm just kind of putting myself in your shoes. So your, your daughter was born 30 minutes later, you're getting this wonderful news about the fact that you've got great opportunity at no cost to you that's that's amazing and and then the other piece of what you just said is interesting like when they said as a security guard like you're not meant to be a doctor bro like there's a huge class issue obviously that that is there and a lot of people have this and maybe they wouldn't say it but so uh it's interesting that he said it so honestly at least that was a very candid uh, comment there's also a big race issue in america and I'm, i'm just curious like what has been your experience earning this many degrees as a black man and and was this something that you kind of like thought about actively as you're going through the process or is something that you kind of reflected on after the fact? Luckily, actually, the, the chief editor at Nature Genetics called me about a couple of weeks after George Floyd was uh, murdered and asked me if I would pin my feelings as to what this journey has been like traversing science and medicine as a Black man. Um, obviously, I'm a, a Black man, but also culturally, there are a lot of aspects to my visual that can, in many ways, you know, cause people to rethink who I am and, from my hair and my beard and even the way that I talk. So I wrote about it and and I I pinned it bootless, um, which is after a a phrase that was said by Martin Luther King in 1967. He was interviewed and somebody asked him, why is it that every other race of people who come to this country can lift themselves up by their bootstraps? And he made the comment, he said, well, the difference between us and them is that they were given things to help them get started and we were left bootless to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and it's, it's a cruel jest to tell someone to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps if they don't have any boots and I, I very much felt like my journey was bootless and what that means is, is that I, I literally figured out everything along the way it was ad hoc the entire time just you know flying by the seat of my pants at every step you know like oh I'm finishing undergrad and somebody told me I could be a PhD student and my main motivation for going to get the PhD was the fact that they were going to pay me $48,000 a year to learn. I've never heard of anyone ever having that ever happen to them. So, you know, I, I took it. And then obviously coming here, it was a money motivation because we had two kids. And so, but you know, the one thing I can say is, is that there were people along the way who were willing to hold my hand and not, you know, hold my hand in such a way that I couldn't walk on my own, but they held my hand and said, hey, turn this way, don't turn this way, talk to this person, don't talk to this person. And that's, that's the one piece that I can hold my hand on is that I've been able to do that. There's this guy, Dr. Vladimir Zvetlov. He's a, a protein chemist at um, NYU who came from Russia. And he's, this is the most weirdest relationship in the world, but he's probably my best friend and one of my biggest supporters. And he just gave it to me straight, you know, and, and really helped me to understand how do I traverse this world? Because he would tell me how the world views me without telling me. Because they obviously ain't never going to tell me personally. They would just tell him. And he'd be like, oh, let me go tell him how the world sees him. And so he helped me to kind of see where the pitfalls were and get around them. So so you, you've had a, at least two major uh, types of education. One we've been talking about, which is your graduate degrees, postgraduate degrees. The other type of education is the one that comes with parenthood, right? You have two kids. And, and I imagine you've learned a lot by raising those two kids. And so we were kind of joking about that right before. But you had a conversation with your daughter, and I believe she was around nine years old at the time. 
tell me about that conversation. Like, what was the context? Like, what time of day? Like, just play that out for me. And then how that kind of evolved into 15 White Coats. Yeah, it was uh, July 19th, 2019. It was the summertime. And one of my best friends, he and I were getting our PhD together in the same lab. He came down to visit me here in New Orleans from New York. And, you know, we both went to historically Black colleges and universities. And so Black history is really important to us. And we were going to make a trip down to the Whitney Plantation, which is in Edgar, Louisiana, about 45 minutes outside of the city. And I strung on my daughter into going and kind of told her that she wasn't going to tennis practice today. She loves tennis and she wanted to keep playing. And I was like, nah, today you need to take a day off and come with us. And she was grumpy. And when she got there to the ground, she didn't really want to pay attention. You know, she kind of was upset. And, and then that exact same slave cabin that we took that photo in front of, she walked in there and it was like, I don't know, it's like the ancestors slapped her in the face or something. And she just kind of wandered off on her own. And she came back to me with just like staring in her eye. Like she really understood the power of what the moment was about and what the grounds were about. And she started asking questions and paying attention. And so we were driving back to New Orleans after the whole trip was over. And she interrupted a conversation between Philip and I and said, she just shouted like, dad, I finally understand why it's such a big deal being a black doctor in America. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I've been trying to tell you this like for forever that this is significant. And she was like, no, 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 I understand it now. And I was like, oh, well, tell me why. And she was like, well, just think about it. We just left a plantation. There was a time when people who look like you and Uncle Phil, she said, y'all couldn't be doctors. And I'm riding in a car with Tulia, like at the same time. She's like, we've come a long way. And I was like, yes, indeed, we have. That's what I've been trying to tell you. And so I looked over at Philip after the conversation had subsided. And I told him, I said, man, I got an idea. I was like, I think if I got together some of me and my classmates, we went out there and all black with our white coats on, we could show the world how far black people have come. Because if you think about it, that photo is so striking. It's the juxtaposition of a system that was in place that never intended for us to be who we were. And the fact that we could stand in front with all of that power and you know, stink on our face and, and all of that sassiness is amazing and it's striking. And it's something that will live forever to illustrate just how far we've come. When you shared that idea with folks, like what did people think? I mean, I've seen the picture, so I know already, but before you took the picture, it was just in your head. Mm -hmm. So when you shared that picture in your head with people, what was the response? Yeah, I mean, I think there were some people who were kind of hesitant and were like, whoa, this is kind of edgy. But then I had classmates who were like, nah, we need to do this. And I remember in the, in the email I sent out, it said, like, we're going to take an iconic photo, something that will really illustrate just how far we've come. But it was also a remembrance for us, too, because med school, as you know, is, is draining. It takes nearly everything you have out of you. And, and you need those moments of reflection. Sometimes it's with your grandparents, sometimes it's with the kid. But for us, it was like, what would it feel like for us to go back and remember the cost that was paid for us to be here and the brutality of the moment. And, and it just really felt like it was something we needed to do and people were like on board. So obviously 14 people came along for the ride and, and we got the job done. And, um, and now we have a, an organization that's really thriving. Whenever I've been part of something that feels edgy or, you know, bold, there's always uh, maybe another part of me that's scared or fearful or worried about like, am I doing this the right way? Is this going to be disrespectful in some way? Like, is there, is there some angle I'm not seeing on this? I'm just curious, like when you were going through that decision, maybe driving to the plantation about to take this 
what would be a very iconic picture. Like what were the thoughts in your mind or, or what were the concerns maybe in your mind? I think the biggest thing that I was worried about was exactly what you just said is how edgy is this? Are we going to get in trouble for it? Um, how's it going to be received? We knew we would release the photos. So we, I really was worried about what did other people think? But as you said, like I, I've had a lot of schools of knowledge to go through and the one thing I learned is, is that you can't really control what other people think. Um, but what you can control is what you think and your intentions. And so I think I really banked on that. And I had classmates, like really close friends, like Sydney Labatt, who was like, nah, this is what we need to do. If we're going to do something iconic, like this is the right thing for us to do. So, yeah, but I definitely understand those feelings. And, and, and I still have those feelings to this day with almost every decision I make. And then bring this full circle for me. So it started with like this, I'm imagining you in this plantation, kind of your ancestors, you know, maybe slapping your daughter in a way, like you said, and then your daughter having this idea with you and, and your friend in the car. Then you take the picture, you share the picture, your, your daughter presumably has seen the picture. What are her thoughts as she sees the picture? Like, what does that mean for her? Yeah, so I remember we were on Kelly Clarkson. It was actually my first time hearing my daughter say that. She was like, now... I kind of have the cheat code to becoming a physician. She was like, I know exactly what I need to do, but I also know exactly who I can turn to when it's my turn. And even if it's just one child, obviously we wanted to be millions, but if even if it's just one child, we've done our job. Um, and to hear my own child say like, my dad is someone who inspires me. As you know, as a parent, it's something you pray to every God on the planet for. And so we're really excited about it. That's awesome. And, and so walk me through, like, people see this and they might think, okay, so this is about representation, I get it, but it's more than that, right? Like, it's about like black physicians actually improving health outcomes. So help me walk through that and explain that in your own words. Like, how does that actually help improve health outcomes? Yeah, so we know that physician-patient discordance has a huge impact on the outcomes of patients. So whether or not patients are compliant, whether or not patients follow up, how willing patients are to share information with you is really based on this cultural competence piece, but also the importance of those physicians to have the knowledge base, but also the experience. And sometimes even the outward appearance, all of those things are important. And so the only way that we can really do that is to diversify medicine, not only diversify medicine from the perspective of thought processes, but also to diversify medicine by the people who are in medicine, like the people donning the white coat on a regular basis. As you know, the cost of medical school is extremely expensive and the cost of getting into medical school is somewhere between 2,500 to upwards of $10,000 to apply one time. If you think about that and you take into account the economic history of our country for minoritized populations, there's an imbalance there and there's an incongruence there. And, and we are trying to figure out a way to sort of lessen that economic burden such that people can really focus on the things that they need to to get into medical school, which is doing well on the MCAT, um, getting all of those letters of recommendation, the shadowing and all these other things that they need to do. If you're working a job, you don't have time to do those things. And so, you know, we want to pay for those MCAT books and pay for the UWorld subscriptions and pay for their MCAS application and, you know, everything they need, hotels and, and flights and stuff like that so that they can actually get into med school. And that's truly how I think we'll diversify medicine fast. It sounds like, in a manner of speaking, you're creating the boots that you were talking about at the, at the beginning. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, it's exactly the way I think about it is recognizing as somebody who's traversed this system that it's a lot of people who are bootless. And if you understand what the boots are, 
then you're able to provide them. And literally the fact that we've gone through this entire process helps us to understand what the boots are. And so it's, it's our job to do that. You started this conversation kind of talking about your experience as a security guard, and then maybe a, a person kind of uh, smiled on you and gave you a chance, and then you, you took it and you ran with it and you've been running ever since. I'm curious, like, have people approached you? And obviously, we started talking about the fact that you're in a library, you're giving out this sum of money, this scholarship. Have people approached you and said, hey, I'm a security guard, I'm, you know, fill in the blank, and I'm not meant to be a doctor, but I want to be. And so how do I do it? And I'm curious, like, what your response has been if that has come up for you? Yeah, I think it's happened to me multiple times. Um, actually, I just recently had my match day video go viral. Um, and as a part of that, there were so many people reached out to me and were like, yo, somebody told me that because I was a janitor, I couldn't be a lawyer or because I was, you know, this, I couldn't be that. And so well, obviously I've been able to resonate with their story, but I've also been able to understand that now I'm in a position where not only I can inspire the next generation, but I can figure out a way to be the resource for that next generation. And that's literally what we're doing now is figuring out a way to create animation that speaks to the cultural sensitivity and cultural competence that's necessary, raising money, putting this photo in every classroom we possibly can, putting books that are culturally appropriate for children in these spaces. And that's where we are now, man. It's our job now with the 15 white coats. And I think we're doing a good job at it. So maybe you can give me your thoughts on other groups that are doing good work. So, you know, we know COVID has put a lot of attention on the fact that there are health disparities in a race and everyone kind of wrings their hands about it and talks a lot about the fact that it exists and, and I know it and you know it. But walk me through like groups that are doing something concrete that you feel is worthwhile or you feel like really strongly about. Yeah, I definitely think that um, one of the ones that comes to the front of my mind is Project Diversify Medicine, which is run by a physician. Uh, I think she's a family medicine physician or maybe an internist who's been doing a lot of work in how do we diversify medicine by taking into account the cultural aspect of this entire process, meaning that you can keep your hair and keep your beard and keep your representation, but also be brilliant and really bringing forth the idea that you don't have to change yourself culturally to be brilliant. And I think that's extremely important because the biggest component of becoming a physician or lawyer or anything is the confidence piece. The imposter syndrome, I think alone can defeat a lot of people's tries at becoming whatever it is that they wanna be. And I think that's extremely important. I also, and this is not just because I'm on this podcast, you know, Jill Cummings is a friend of mine and she's kept me abreast of what osmosis is doing. But I think what you all are doing is brilliant, man. I think the way that you are really having these important conversations in purposeful or intentional conversations is important, especially with the platform you all have. I think oftentimes people miss the mark. They have these huge platforms and then they miss their opportunity to be an influence. The biggest part is the conversation. So once we have the conversation, then we can really put in policy and drive money in the right direction to really make a difference. And so, yeah, that's two that stick out in my mind. So thank you for the kind words. That's very generous of you. I'd like to take this opportunity maybe to broaden the conversation to any topic that you think right now is a bit of a knowledge gap for folks, maybe a bit of a myth, maybe something people don't fully understand or appreciate, a nuance maybe that you see among med students or let's say early students in the uh, health system. What would you say to those folks about something that you've learned along the way that maybe they are slightly off on, or as I said, have a myth around. Yeah. Every patient's room that you walk into, think of them as a family member, not just cliche, like, oh, this is a family member, but genuinely as someone that you have some sort of connection with and you have an endearment with. 
because I think that level of care and that level of connection that you have with a patient is the difference between extremely effective and long lasting care or just a transient experience between a patient and a provider that really doesn't get to the heart of, can we change this patient's course of survival? Everybody has, at least in my opinion, a soul, and they have this moral compass, especially if you're a physician, you have a moral compass, hopefully. I think we have to use it more when we interact with patients. And we have to remember that being in medicine is a privilege, and it's the highest privilege in the world because we manage the one entity that everyone owns that you can't get another one of. So your life and your health is something that you can't just go get more of or whenever you feel like it. You know, you get to the end of your shelf life, you're like, oh, I'm gonna go get a new heart. I'm gonna go get new lungs. I'm gonna go get a new brain. It doesn't work that way. And so we have to remember that these people are giving us an opportunity to manage something that is extremely important and valuable to them. If we take that into account, we'll be much better clinicians. I appreciate you saying that. I, I think one other thing that that reminds me of is that as a clinician, whenever I do have those moments, when I stop and think about a person as my my mom, my dad, my kid, um, it's much more rewarding, right? Like like my own cup gets filled up as the days that I'm stressed and tired or whatever. It's like the days when it all felt really transactional. And so it's like in a very self-serving way, it actually makes life a lot better for you when you when you take the view that you're kind of espousing. Um, listen, I know that you've got a pretty exciting event coming up right now. Uh, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I do want to say thank you. You know, listening to you speak and telling your story is really, really inspirational. And, and your nine-year-old is very inspirational as well. So thank you for sharing that very personal anecdote with us and, and for everything you had to share with us on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Rishi, man. It's been great being on. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.